This is Hugh Cruzel at 96.7 on your FM dial, and the program is Eat This, Drink That, a program about food, drink, and quality of life. Well, I suppose quality of life can be defined in so many different ways, and certainly acquiring knowledge is one of the key ingredients. If you are wondering about the night sky, if you've ever looked up at the stars and wondered where it all began and where it's all going to end, perhaps, well, we're making a trip to the planetarium, and uh, we have the pleasure of uh, of having a guide who's going to give us an understanding of the night sky. Well, the day sky, too. We just don't see it, do we? That's right. Who are we speaking to? <coughs> My name is Apolimel Legault. I'm the director of the Dorn Planetarium here on campus. On, on campus where? Laurentian University, Laurentian. of course. <laughs> And I've had the pleasure of being here over the years many times. How long has the planetarium been here? Well, we celebrated our 50th anniversary in November. And how many people in Sudbury do you think know about the planetarium? Unfortunately, the number is probably low. <laughs> Though Not for trying, right? Not for, no exactly. Uh, we have uh, quite a few schools. Yes. Okay, when I last looked at the numbers, we were something well over 130,000 visitors. Over the years. Over the years. That's amazing. Okay. So we get a few thousand each year, uh, but it seems the kids know about it. But the parents don't. Don't, and unfortunately, neither do the teachers. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, hopefully this program might reach out to a few new people. I know that today, July the 5th, uh, you're actually giving a tour for not children, not parents, but, well, they, they once were those things, but now grandparents. Yes, because the sky is attractive. It's interesting to everybody, from the little one to senior citizens <laughs> like me. <laughs> <laughs> but in terms of the universe, we're not really senior. We're just little specks of dust, aren't we? Not only, not are we only specks of dust, but we've only been here for a tiny, tiny fraction of the time scale of the universe. But we're trying to understand this whole thing, aren't we? Of course. We're probably the only species who's trying to understand what it's all about. Looking up at the sky and, and thinking, how did it happen? And Big Bang is still the thing? Everybody believes the Big Bang is where it all started? What happened before the Big Bang? <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, uh, this is the, if we accept the Big Bang theory, okay, which most people do. Do, yes. Okay. Uh, before the Big Bang, uh, there was nothing. I, I can't conceive of that. It's like zero. <laughs> uh, not only is there nothing, there's not even time. Not even time. Okay, so matter, energy, nothing existed. So, in quantum mechanics, a singularity can appear. So, our mathematics allow this, okay? So, we go from nothing to something, which seems to contradict every laws of physics. <laughs> well, matter can't be destroyed or created, right? That's right. So, it, there must have been some matter before. No, this no is matter. It, okay? So, this is where comes in the puzzle of the Big Bang. So there's a tiny fraction of a second, 10 to the minus 43 of a second, known as Planck's time, which we do not understand. Mm. Mm. So the Big Bang theory starts at the end of that short period. 
Okay, that's the Big Bang Theory, and it follows a logical sequence and explains fairly well the evolution of matter, the galaxies, the stars, the planets. Okay. But the problem is that tiny little fraction of a second. So there are other theories, like the string theories, yes. which uh, compete with that, but no one has been able to come up with that explanation, which makes a lot of people think. So after that, things are created and the universe starts expanding, which also blows my mind. And it's not stable now. We, we tend to draw pictures and say, well, this is where this is, and that's where that is. But it's not there except when we draw it. It continues to change, right? Uh, uh, that's right. Uh, as we're speaking right now, by the time we finish this interview, the universe will probably be a few million miles, a f million kilometers bigger. <laughs> That's than right. it have, was to be have to be metric, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> bigger. Yes. To, I mean, there's an edge somewhere. There is an edge to the visible universe. <sighs> Maybe that's all about the whole thing, right? Okay. Did we just... If we imply a visible universe, we're automatically implying an invisible universe, mm -hmm. one we can't see. Well, but we couldn't see before without the benefits of telescopes and the rest of it. So our seeing became greater, and then things like Doppler and whatever allowed us to see differently. What's next on the horizon? Or we don't know yet. Well, what's going to happen is as it, it expands, more time will elapse, and objects which are now in the invisible universe, their light will have reached us, yes. given us new information. Hmm. Well, I find it hard when I look up at the night sky and I see brighter stars and stars that are less bright or dimmer, and I don't understand the distances between them. We, we really can't because brightness isn't the only, only thing to help us identify that. But we look up and it looks kind of like a cloak with, with small holes in it. But there's quite a vast distance between what looks like two very close stars to us on, on this planet. Of course. Uh, you, you simply look at it and this star might be four light years away, okay? But at the same time, you're looking at the faint glow of a galaxy, like the Andromeda Yes, the Andromeda some of them are galaxy. not stars, they're galaxies, aren't they? That's a galaxy, and that's 2.6 million light years away. And we still see the faint glow with our eyes. Yes. So when we look at the night sky, it's impossible to judge a distance on just the brightness of the stars or the positions of the stars. A star could be brighter because it is closer, but it could be brighter because it's hotter. It could be brighter because it's younger bigger. Or younger, too? Or uh, they're not always bright if they're young, I that's suppose. Right. That's right. That's right. Uh -huh. And there's things like red dwarves and things like that. When, I mean, the things that I've read, but I, I probably have forgotten thousands of them. Like, well, I couldn't even name all the planets in order. Isn't that <laughs> terrible? Although I know we're the third rock from the sun because that was a TV program, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> <laughs> But there are gaseous, is that the right word? Gaseous, gaseous planets, and there are liquid planets, and there are solid planets like That's those. right. Uh, like the first four planets in our system are terrestrial planets, yes. rocky planets, okay? 
even though ours has got water, it's basically just a rock. Mm -hmm. Then we move on to the gaseous planets, which are basically Jupiter and Saturn. Okay. Uh, they have a core, it's a solid core. Okay. It's possibly about 13 times heavier than the Earth, mm -hmm. but it's about the size of the Earth. Mm -hmm. Because surrounding it, there's 317 times the mass of the Earth of gases compressing this core. Mm. Okay, so we have a gaseous planet. Okay? Uh, as the pressure increases, the gases tend to liquefy, and they become the strange mixture, what we call liquid metallic hydrogen. Huh. The metallic is just an adjective to describe its properties, since- How it, it behaves, right? That's right, how it conducts electricity and heat, just like a piece of metal. Again. And we'll never go there, right? Oh, we'll never get there. No, well, not you and I. But yeah. then we never said we'd get to the moon either. Ah, but the thing is, oh, we can get to Jupiter. Okay, yes. but to give you an example, we've sent probes, okay, into the atmosphere of Jupiter. The first 150 kilometers are cloud-like, okay? Then we go into molecular hydrogen. Okay. Now, as the parachute on this probe drifted, it drifted down for about an hour. Then as pressure increases, the temperature increases, oh, and yes. the whole thing disintegrates. Of course. Okay. And if, if, if we were able to get to the core, this rocky part I described, okay, the surface temperature on that core is about 25,000 Kelvin. So it does, but it doesn't glow. Well, we can't see it. Oh, well, we can't see it because of all the... And if you stop to think about it, the surface of the sun is only about 6,000. The surface of that rock is hotter than the surface of the sun by about a factor of four. And do we get some of that radiation then coming towards... We must get a small no, percentage. It's just a small percentage. percentage. But the sun at that temperature... But the sun is not a big star, is it? No, it's a very average star. In fact, it's a bit or on average the smaller star. star and it's Small smaller than average. Really? Yes. Uh, we're just a little piece of a, um, a solar system that on an edge of a galaxy that means nothing. Well, maybe it means something. I don't it, know. It means something because we're here, I guess. <laughs> and you're right. We're just one of about 100 billion galaxies that make up the universe. And how many of these are Class M planets in these galaxies? I think that's the right word, isn't it? Class M? Yes. Uh, well, the, the planets themselves, we don't know how many they are. But we're discovering more and more well, all more the time. More and more. Uh, uh, on my listing that I've got on my iPad, uh, I've got more than 4,000 different planets. That might support life. That planets, okay? Out of that, there's probably a few hundred that might support life. L not life as we know it, necessarily. Not necessarily. Because we are, according to Star Trek, carbon-based units, but there might be silica-based units, silica-based life. Uh, that's a They're definite possibility. But when we discuss possibility of life, we still tend to limit ourselves to carbon-based. Yes. Well, we really haven't defined even life that well, because bacteria and many things defy some of the things that we understand. That's right. A definition for life. 
is very difficult. <laughs> and the same thing, a definition for an intelligent being. Well, some people might not class us as that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Although some of us are inquisitive. Let's ask the question, how did you get into doing what you do? Oh, you got to go back a long time now. <laughs> uh, as a, t a teenager, and I still ham, uh, a licensed radio operator. <laughs> ham. Ham radio, yes. <laughs> ham radio. And uh, in... Uh, in '59, when the Russians launched Sputnik One, yes, okay. so they launched this, this little thing here, and it goes around the earth, goes beep beep beep. It was the size of a basketball, wasn't uh, it? About the size of a basketball. Yes. Okay, and so hey, well, this thing is emitting sounds. I'm going to try. <laughs> Unfortunately, my equipment was, wasn't geared enough or good enough. I never did pick up the sound. So I says. Okay, if I can't hear it, I'm going to go out and look for it. Now, talk about a stupid move. Because <laughs> it moved fairly fast, right? Well, a stupid move on my part. Because? Because it's no bigger than a football. <laughs> right, how could you see that in the sky? How could you possibly and ever see it? You and know? you had a telescope at that time. Yes. Now, there are two main kinds, like Dobsonian and... And what's uh, the other one? Dobsonian refers to a base. Oh. Okay. The two main types of telescopes are refractors, right. which uses lenses at the front. Yes. And the reflector, which uses a mirror. And which did you have? A, a small refractor. And that was a hobby-grade yes. telescope? Yes. And you thought you could see Spandek? <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, nowadays, when I talk about that type of little telescope I was using, you know, yes. it's just, I've got one in a planetarium here, and it's a, don't ever buy this. It's no good for astronomy. <laughs> it's good for bird watching. Okay. okay. And so you then graduated yeah, from that to something else. This is it. Then it kept on and it kept on and it got more curious, you know. And then I decided I was going to try and do more in radio astronomy. And I never really got anywhere. And initially my training was in electronics. Yes. Okay, and went to the U.S. to study electrical engineering. And then just by coincidence, <laughs> uh, ham radio again. Yes. Mm -hmm. Talking to a Jesuit priest in Africa, ah. Father Leclerc. Father Leclerc, who was here originally. Yeah, he eventually we both Even ended up yes. and. He convinced me to go into radio astronomy. And that's a whole different way of looking at the that's sky. That's right. That's it's right. not lenses. It's not, it's it's not lenses. It's um, receivers of some sort. Exactly. Exactly. Instead of a mirror, it's a large parabolic dish. Right. Okay. Which looks like the mirror on a telescope. It captures radio emissions. We're not talking music here. No. <laughs> okay. It's more or less static to the average person. But it's music to you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we can eventually decipher it. Yes. And then after graduation we came back to Sudbury. Because you were from here originally. Uh, that's right. Yes. And uh, I'm of course looking for a job. New graduate. Okay. So one night I'm on the radio. Who do I come across? Father Leclerc again. I said, 
Where are you? He's in Sudbury. He's just opened up the Institute of Astronomy. And he says, what are you doing? So I'm looking for a job. And he says, come on down, we'll talk. <laughs> I've been here ever since. <laughs> since what year was that? I started in August 68. Now, you spent some time, though, with NASA, working with NASA and other organizations over the years. Was that after that hire? Or? Yes, it, it was part of the job as a... As with the collaborative pieces then yeah, with others. With the institute. So we yes. worked with NASA. We had the, an observatory on the mountain near Laurentian Lake. Yes, that's right. And for two years, uh, uh, we followed the GEOS B satellite. And uh, the purpose of that experiment was to determine the exact shape of the Earth. Well, we all know that it's round. But Ish. It's easier, okay? Round and that yes. Because it spins, it's flattened at the pole. Yes. We knew that. But we discovered that it's rounder at the bottom oh. than it is. I didn't know okay? that. And I, I thought it was a... And that's one point. It's got kind of like a gouge in it. And, and we are looking also for gravitational anomalies. Yes. Uh, like Sudbury. Yes, uh, with the, the nickel. Uh, exactly. Yes. Because those anomalies affect any satellite in space. The effect is minute, but over time, it can slow them down, change oh. their orbit. Yes. Okay. So they have to know, NASA has to know all of this information. So, so this the, is the yes, the Earth would influence oh, yes. up to probably thousands of kilometers. Exactly. Out. Oh, my goodness. I hadn't thought about that. Okay. And so we accumulated data. There were five, five men working on this project every clear night from sunset to sunrise. Seven days a week, doesn't matter, Christmas, you name it. <laughs> you had to be out there. We had to be out there. Now, radio telescopes don't require the sky to be clear, do they? No, they don't. No, whereas the others that use, le that use lenses do require... Absolutely. And we have light pollution and things in most urban areas, so I imagine most other kinds of telescopes are located in isolated areas where the air is still as well? I mean, that must make a difference. Oh, yes. You need the still hair, you need the cool hair. Cool. Okay. So, if you go up on the mountains, way up high, the higher the... Like Chile better. and Hawaii. That's right. Where the air is actually thinner. Yes. Okay. And cooler. So, it stabilizes. What, what message would... Have you been sharing with people over the years? The students, the... the the, the young kids that come here, what's the primary message when you see them and, or is it, is it already a spark in their eyes when they arrive here? Most of them have a curiosity. Yes. Okay. And then I try to encourage them, go ahead, ask questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. Mm -hmm. And then they go on and then you'd be surprised at how many questions that you get, okay? And from the simplest thing, which is the biggest star, which is the smallest star, to, you know, what are black holes, okay? Yes. And then when we talk about black holes, depending on the kids, okay? And I had grade school kids, you know, uh, 
push questions, you know, ask questions. Then, then the first thing I know, I'm talking about five dimensions, like I'm talking to my students. Uh, uh, and, and they're accepting it. Uh, okay, and, and you're, we're talking five dimensions. We're just describing... Hang on, I don't even know what five dimensions are. This is this length. This is, this is it. We don't know what it is. Oh. That, that's a beauty. <laughs> and and this is the thing. And there, there could be as many as 11, I'm told. Oh. Okay. And, but those are just sets of equations. But when you explain to the kid that we don't know what they are, but we have equations that can explain, then kind of dawns on them. Then it just allows me to explain phenomena like wormholes. Yes. Okay. Because if you stick to four dimensions, don't go near a warm world, you're dead. Right, you'll be stuck. <laughs> you're stuck, and that's it, you're dead. Never so see the end of it. Okay, so you need a fifth dimension. To emerge from the wormhole. To be able to go in. Okay, you'd have to enter from the fifth dimension. Because if you're limiting yourself to four, you're dead. If you enter. So the fifth dimension is kind of, if we're imaginary, we're coming dead center in the black hole where time would stop yes. okay and then you would reemerge somewhere else instantaneously well hopefully somewhere you want to be <laughs> exactly but i don't think it works that way does it well this is we, don't know. we don't know where the other end is <laughs> <laughs> you, actually my brain went tilt when you started talking about the fifth dimension right there i'm just not do you think that in an effort to understand our world it's essential that people gather some knowledge of astronomy generally, where we fit into things, where where we might be going, what the hope of, the, of even our people, our, our civilization is. I think everyone should have a bit of astronomy. If nothing else is uh, to link us to our past, mm. to know our roots. You mean mythology? All the mythology in astronomy. Mm. I think people know this, the mythology, perhaps better than the astronomy. I mean, we know we talk about some of the constellations for, for certainly in terms of, uh, you know, the Pisces or, or um, oh, the, you can, I, you can name all of them. I can't they, name even three they, right now. They, most people will know the name of the constellation. Yes. A few people will be able to spot the Big Dipper, <laughs> okay? But they don't understand the story behind How did that become known as the Big Dipper or Ursa Major? Yes. How? And if you go from one country to another, the story changes. Yes. And if you go to a Native American legend, the story is completely different, and there's a, a, a way for them to teach the younger ones. Mm -hmm. The elders would teach the younger ones with uh, these uh, stories. And you're an elder, and you're teaching us. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> Trying to. In, in essence, I mean, things like the Triffid. That's one of the constellations, isn't it? Or one of the uh, a cluster of stars? It's a cluster of stars. Cluster of stars. Um, but, you know, even for us in the northern hemisphere, we tend to think of the night sky as being one thing, but if you go to the southern hemisphere, it looks completely different, doesn't it? Oh, completely, completely. What about uh, the people at the equator? What, what happens to them? They uh, get a bit of both, I guess. Uh, well, in fact, on the equator, 
It's the only place on the planet where you can see all of the stars that surround us. Oh my goodness. No, you can't do it in one night. No. Okay, but you'd have to oh, go through a whole year. Yes, the uh, tilt of the Earth, 23 and So the we'd have to wait a whole year. But anywhere else, like in Sudbury, there are stars we'll never see. And if you go too far south, the stars they'll never see, like they'll never see the North Star. No. Okay. But if or the you're Big on, Dipper. Or the Big Dipper. So if you're on the equator, you can actually see the entire celestial sphere, but it'll take you a year to do it. Well, I, I'm, I'm game for it. I stay at the equator, especially over January and February is a great place to it's be, I imagine. It's a good place to be. And, well, in September of this year, a great place will be it's to be. We'll be here at the planetarium. Because? Because I am preparing a presentation on the southern skies. How appropriate. <laughs> wow, I asked the right question. Then. <laughs> but coming up on July the 5th, today, you're actually hosting a group of, uh, of uh, seniors in the community, although I don't think they'll all be seniors. And I'd, how we define senior is quite different. But it'll be CARP. The, uh, the CARP group will be coming here about maybe hopefully 50 or so people, uh, maybe more. How many seats do you have in the planetarium? Uh, 70 seats. 70 seats. So um, I think they'll be delighted to, to join you and, and learn a little bit more because even if we're 55 or, or 75, there's things to learn, aren't there? Exactly. New stuff. There's always new stuff. Quasars <laughs> and quarks and, and all the words that I've never learned, I think. <laughs> Uh, there are so many bosons and things. Well, maybe I'm not uh, saying that right. Boson? Bosons, uh, yes. Okay. And we, we haven't even discovered half of what we need to know yet. Dark matter, dark energy, uh, all of these concepts. <laughs> and uh, give you an example of a senior enjoying this. When my mother was alive, mm -hmm. okay, mom went to great tree. Yes. Okay. And every time I go over to her house for coffee or something, uh, what are you teaching this week? And then I go into her next place. She was curious about everything I was teaching. And, she, and for a person who's just had grade school, just a few grade, and she was always interested in these things. And I find that uh, a lot of older people have questions because they hear a lot of things on TV mm -hmm. and they don't have the opportunity to ask questions. So when they come to the planetarium, the questions come up. And what do you think the number one question is going to be this July the 5th? Uh, don't, aren't we approaching like a meteor shower or things like that in that period of time or is that August? Uh, the meteor shower is in August, it's a Persian a meteor shower. Uh, and in the presentation, I make it a little bit of an extra effort to talk about meteor showers, how they occur, why they occur. Because sometimes we it, do see them with the naked eye. Oh, of course. Uh, we can expect uh, during the Perseid meteor showers to be able to see 50 to 60 meteors an hour. That's amazing. That's beautiful. That's and how, beautiful. Big, how big would they be? Yeah. Well. Surprisingly, most meteors are not much bigger than a grain of sand. But they light up, they illuminate. Oh, yes, when they burn up. They literally burn up. Because they're traveling at such a high speed, they burn up in our upper atmosphere, leaving this trail of bright light. But thank goodness, because otherwise, 
I mean, but that was an asteroid that made Sudbury, wasn't it? Oh, yes, it was a large, large asteroid. What's the difference between asteroid and meteorite? Meteor? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the meteorites are usually just the small rocks. Yes. Uh, astronomers tend to be fussy. Like a meteor is a streak of light. Yes. A meteoroid is a small rock. <laughs> a meteorite. <laughs> and that reaches Earth. Then. That's the one that reaches uh, the Earth. <laughs> and we don't want to know about asteroids because uh, that's dangerous the, stuff. The asteroids are, can be quite large. Yes. The average size of an asteroid is 10 kilometers. Uh, yikes. That's an average. And that's size. what hit Sudbury. Oh, no. Then when it hit Sudbury, it was a few hundred kilometers. Oh, my goodness. The big one. Wow. Well, we don't want to have a big one strike us during our presentation no, no. here at the Planetarium. And uh, to those of you who are joining us today at the Planetarium here at Laurentian University, uh, meet us in the Fraser Auditorium. And uh, actually, I bet you that uh, Dr. Legault would have anybody join him over time and make arrangements to, to uh, show the night sky using the tools that you have at hand. Of course. Anybody who's interested, it's just a matter of calling us here. We'll make some kind of arrangement for and your group. How do we? How do people reach you? The, what is the telephone? No, it's six seven five one one five one. What's your extension? The extension at the Laurentian number is twenty two twenty seven. And is that a significant number in terms of astronomy? No, no, <laughs> too bad. The only thing significant about it is it reaches me. <laughs> well, thank you so much. We've been delighted to have reached you today. And uh, this July 5th, we're at the Planetarium talking about quality of life. Thank you so much, Dr. Lippert. Thank you.